Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Start here, start now by Liz Kleinrock. It's a practical guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in schools. It implements social justice work while building traditional literacy skills at the same time. There is no one and done lesson or book when it comes to social justice and culturally reflective teaching. This book is meant to help educators break habits that are holding them back from this work, as well as build positive, sustainable teaching for the future. Learn more and purchase. Start here, start now at Heinemann.com. Today's guest is Kwame Sofumetsa, a 15-year veteran urban educator and the founder and CEO of Identity Talk Consulting, LLC, an independent educational consulting firm that provides professional development and consulting services to K-12 school districts, educators, colleges and universities, and educational nonprofit organizations. He is also the author of two books, Shaping the Teacher Identity, Eight Lessons That Will Help You Define the Teacher in You, and From Inaction to Action, Creating a New Normal for Urban Educators. A proud graduate of Temple University, Kwame holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics and a master's degree in elementary education. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, what's going on, brother? Hey, brother, good to see you. Yes, sir. How you feeling today? Man, I'm good, brother. I'm good. I'm glad to be on this platform. I feel like I've arrived. <laughs> and, oh, stop uh, it. Come on, man. Um, you know, you and Lorena, y'all doing some powerful work. You know, as I mentioned before, uh, we all came on the podcast, and that's going to come out in a couple weeks, y'all. So make sure y'all check out um, that multicultural classroom interview on our day's Talk for Educators Live. Um, so quick plug there. But, yeah, I'm just honored to be on this platform, and I'm I'm just thrilled to break bread with you on this important topic. Well, thanks for taking time to join me. It's encouraging to me to be able to connect with another brother who's on the grind, who's doing the work, who's making a difference. These are, these are moments that I appreciate and I do not take them for granted. I don't take your time for granted, but I don't take the fact that we got two brothers who are doing positive things, who are making an impact in this world and in the education field, coming together to support one another and collaborate. You know, the narrative that they paint of us, obviously, is quite the opposite when we're looking at mainstream media and whatnot. But hopefully, this this will help to continue to disrupt that narrative. I'm excited to hear from you because... Math is not my specialty whatsoever, and I'm, I try to lead with curiosity. 
as it relates not just to math, but things that are not necessarily my expertise. And so I've been checking out some of your podcasts and recent articles and whatnot, and I'm interested to hear your perspective on a number of different things. But we'll, we'll go ahead and get started with one thing that's been on my mind as I've reflected on my experience as a school leader. Yes. One of the things that I would find challenging is some of the, what I felt as resistance from math educators when I was challenging and encouraging them to incorporate social justice themes into their curriculum. Why do you think that's such a challenge for math educators? Ooh, that's how we starting, brother? That's, that's how, how we, we started. <laughs> Coming in hot. Okay. Why is it a challenge for math educators to incorporate social justice themes? It's a very multi-layered question, so I'm going to just kind of break it down to the simplest of forms. I think, first and foremost, when we look at math, Compared to other content areas, math is in a league of its own. Let's just start there. Okay. We think about the we think about the fact that we have literacy, we have history, we have science, we have uh, social studies, and all these other content areas that are very much interdisciplinary, and you can just mix them in however you want, right? And it's easy to do it with with those subjects. Math is different because there's a there's a different way you have to go about it. You have to know algorithms. You you have to be familiar with how equations work, but also you also have to understand how they look within the context of different real world problems, right? And I think the reason why it's tough for a lot of math teachers to incorporate social justice things is because when we think about math, we think of math as this procedural thing that we do. So when I say procedural, it's usually, okay, we're going to learn about two-step equations. I'm going to teach you how to, um, for those who, are, who teach math, you'll understand the language I'm saying. You're going to learn how to um, balance the equation by using the inverse operation uh, to keep the equation balanced. Uh, you're going to make sure that both sides are equating to each other, but there's a step-by-step process that you have to take in order to get to that final solution. So you're solving these problems that have formulas, that have algorithms, but it's outside of context, right? It's not within a word problem. It's not within anything that we deal with on a daily basis. And so much of math is taught in that manner. Think about when you were growing up, Roberto. You had to memorize timetables, right? Yes. We memorized timetables. We learned how to add fractions. We learned how to divide fractions. We learned how to do a lot of different things. And we got to a point where we were doing it pretty well. But how many of us can explain why those algorithms work? Not me. I mean, there are a lot of people, even myself, who was a math major in college, I couldn't explain why when I divide fractions, I flip the reciprocal and do the inverse operation, which is multiplication. I don't understand why that worked. It wasn't until 
I was into my teacher training for my master's class that I realized why it worked. But that took me, what, 25 years to realize that? And I was a math major in college. I was mm. taking level courses such as differential calculus. I was taking linear algebra. I was taking all the other calculuses and, and uh, probability. Like any math class you can think of, high level, I had to take it over the course of four years of undergrad. And I could even give a simple explanation about a skill that I learned as early as, I don't know, fifth grade. But that's a lot of us, Roberto. A lot of us are in that space. So now we think about how math is taught. We teach it in a procedural way, meaning that we give our students the steps. We tell the students to do this. If you do this, if you do that, if you do this, you're going to end up with this. And that's what's, and that's all students end up knowing. So now... When it comes time for testing, that's what they need to know in order to pass their state test. A lot of what's on the test are just straight computations, just calculations, right? They are not tied to social justice things, whether you're talking about multiple choice questions or even open-ended questions. Part of the reason I asked this question, besides what I started with, is I reflect on my own math experience. I was not a strong math student. I would sometimes bargain with my sister, Shirley, to get her to do my math homework in exchange for whatever, like in exchange for covering up something that she's going to do that can't get out to my parents or, you know, maybe a few dollars, whatever. I'm like, yo, anything not to do this math. And then I think about the things that have stuck with me, especially when it comes to thinking about finances and disparities and inequities when you're looking at like, oh, wait a second, you know, this adds up to this and this is why, you know, this individual or this family would fall short. Mm -hmm. When I think about rap lyrics, for example, uh, even though they weren't reinforcing themes that I'm not necessarily down with in terms of pushing weight in the community and whatnot, but when I listen to the intricacies and what they're working in terms of the math, the fractions, when they're talking about drugs, like some of those things stick with me. Right. Yeah. And so, like, we don't have to necessarily talk about drugs, although that 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 could be a really good social com uh, social justice conversation. Right. Why are these rappers talking about it? What's happening in these communities? Like, all right. What do these references mean? And, and so. I think about the way I learn math and it just didn't do it for me. And then I think about some of the things that have stuck with me, as I've mentioned, and I wonder, I'm like, what else can we be doing differently? And is this the only way to teach math? You're saying a lot of different things. I think number one, when you say you weren't a strong math learner, define strong. What does a strong math learner look like and sound like in your opinion? Maybe, maybe, strong, maybe strong wasn't the right word. What Maybe what I meant is I was not a confident math learner. Why weren't you confident? Because I wouldn't count to certain math problems. I'm like, yo, I do not understand this. I have, I don't understand what's going on here. It wasn't being taught to me well enough for me to feel like I could master these equations, for example. My freshman year, I went to boarding school. I did one year because it was the worst, one of the worst experiences of my life, but made it through the whole year. A freshman in Newport, Rhode Island, from Lawrence, Massachusetts, from the hood. I'm in his boarding school. I went from the hood school where there were like 30 kids in my class and 
teacher give me homework, I'd be done the homework in five or 10 minutes before school's over. It was right. easy to me. Then I got to boarding school and I'm like, oh, snap. They're giving us like real challenging work. Oh, yeah, it got real. And I, so I was in algebra, algebra one freshman year. I know that we teach more advanced now, right? But at that time, algebra one being a freshman, that was that was the standard. I'm like, where can I hide in this classroom? Because I don't know the answers to these problems. I do not understand it, but there were only six kids in my class. There was no hiding. It was just me struggling through it all year, meeting with my teacher, who was also my advisor, trying to understand the stuff and still feeling like, yo, I don't understand. I'm just going to do everything possible to pass, even if passing meant a D. I did not leave that class feeling like I truly knew Algebra 1. So that's what I mean in terms of not being strong, not being confident. This was my experience in math. Same thing in science. You know what, though? You you pretty much answered your own question. You weren't confident because the teacher didn't pro- provide you with an entry point to the content so that you can look at it from a different viewpoint, from a different lens that relates to your culture. So that's the number one thing when you're talking about cultural responsive teaching and math. There you was have- no culture involved. That's my whole point, though. Imagine if that teacher injected some of that culture, some of that Lawrence, Massachusetts into that math. You'll be more motivated to want to know what's going on, right? Absolutely. And that's and that's where we have to start. And this is why, like, even with uh, with your wife, Lorena, like when she wrote the book Textured Teaching, right? This is exactly what she's talking about right here. And we talked about this um, on the podcast where we have to start off being culturally responsive. So when we talk about culturally responsive teaching, what we're really talking about is an acknowledgement of culture in the classroom. So like I see that I have a classroom of people who are of color, whether they are black, whether they are Latinx, whether they are Asian or Pacific Islander, indigenous, whatever. I see that they're in my classroom. That's the first step is the acknowledgement. So you go from being culturally responsive to now culturally relevant. So when we say culturally relevant, now we have to think about specific issues that are within those communities in which my students are from that are that are having an impact on their well-being. So an example of this is something that I did with my eighth graders a few years back. I did a whole unit focused on racial profiling in Boston. And before we even got into the the Boston segment of it, I had to activate their prior knowledge by asking them about their prior experiences with racial profiling. So that was the number. That was the first thing I did. I didn't do any math. Just so we're clear, this isn't a math class. This isn't a math class. Exactly. The first thing I asked them was, well, I want you to tell me a personal account or story when you experienced racial profiling or you saw a friend or family member experience racial profiling. That was the first exercise. So I had students sharing about uncles getting incarcerated. I had students who were sharing about times where the police stopped them while they were playing with friends. They were stopped and frisked. And then the cops just kept them moving. And now keep in mind, I taught, for those who live in Boston, I taught in Dorchester. So for those who are familiar with Boston, the most highly concentrated black and brown areas are in Dorchester, Mattapan, Roxbury, to a certain degree. Like Hyde Park is getting up there now too, but mainly those first three that I mentioned. My students came from those three um, neighborhoods in Boston. And those are the areas where 
you see the highest prevalence of racial profiling. And I'll get to that in a second, but that was the first thing I did with them. Second thing was, okay, you need to understand the historical context, right? So we need to actually build some, we got to build some um, prior knowledge so that you'll be able to understand why these statistics are the way they are. We talked about the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, when we talk about stop and frisk laws, Jim Crow, what does Jim Crow mean? And how does that tie into this issue of racial profiling contemporarily, right? And I had them do a jigsaw activity where I broke them up into different groups. Each group was responsible for researching an assigned topic, right? And they were able to get a sense of what these different things were. And then because of the jigsaw, they had to teach each other what they learned from these different articles that I assigned them. That exercise in itself took about a whole week because, you know, you're talking about history, so you have to dig deep into things. We're talking about some heavy stuff. We're talking about slave codes. We're talking about stop and frisk. We're talking about amendments from the Constitution, you know, Bill of Rights. But I'm in a math class doing this. That tells you how interdisciplinary math is. I'm incorporating social studies. I'm incorporating history some civics, and some literacy because they have to read and highlight important details from these different um, texts that they had to read, which were like one pages that were scaffolded. So they go through that process. And then finally, we now talk about racial profile in Boston. So to really crystallize the issue, I presented them with a Boston Globe article, which had a map of Boston sectioned off by zip codes. It was a color-coded um, map of Boston where the keys were where like certain colors meant there was a higher prevalence of racial profiling. So I had mm. students at this map and they're looking, they're studying it and they're like, oh, that's my zip code. It's this color. This color means that a lot of police are present in my area. Mm. But then I go to Back Bay. If I right. look at Fenway, it's a lighter color, which means that there's not as much police presence there. Immediately, they're starting to see connections between the data in this map and the numbers. So from that point, they had to create um, different types of data models to present it. They had to do frequency tables. They had to do scatter plots of the data. And then they had to do an analysis of what they were seeing. Why were these trends happening over the course of a certain number of years? So this is all going on in in the math class with seventh and eighth graders. Now, was this something that was tied to standards? So, of course, we're in Massachusetts. So, of course, in Massachusetts, we have our standards that we have to adhere to. But it's really just an iteration of Common Core. Let's just call it what it is. Um, And we had to do we had to follow Common Core. So I had to make sure that whatever I was doing with this unit, tied common core standards that align to my grade level. So that was something that I had to do before I even engaged in this project because I knew that I would have an administrator come in and they would ask me, well, why are you doing this? Well, it's because it ties to this, da-da-da. So I provide my rationale and then they're like, all right, they leave you alone. But I I, want to tell you this, Roberto. I did this project in May of in May. So think about so think about why I did it in May. What usually happens around April or May that we all have to do? 
Let's see. Well, April and May, we got graduations coming up. We got taxes. What else? April and May. Students. What are the students doing around April, May? Come oh, on. well, they got testing. testing. April, May, they're testing. I started this project in late May. Now, why would I start this project in late May and not before? You got to be something to keep them engaged. Well, that's true. But at the time when I did it in 20, was it 2018? But also in late May, in late May, you're transitioning from testing out. So you're not going to have as much conflict, I guess, or tension around, hey, we got to prep them for the test. Thank you. That's that's the whole point. And I knew that. I felt like it would have been appropriate to do it, I don't know, December, <laughs> October, and even May, even January, February, but those are considered high-stake months. Yo, you're getting me heated right now. Testing, testing, testing. And as an administrator, you know what it's like to be in the heat of the moment, to be in the trenches where it's late fall, early spring, and it's a countdown to MTELs. I'm sorry, MCAS. Countdown to the MCAS. So I'm sorry, we, we, we talk in math. MCAS is the state test from for Massachusetts that students got to take. Yo, I struggled as, as a public school administrator because I just, I didn't value it the, the way others did. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I was looking at my kids all stressed out. I'm like, Yo, we want them to love learning and we want them to, to, to master these skills and, and be engaged in wonderful content. Like what you described, that's something I could get with in a math class. And it's, it, it lands, for me, it lands in a more meaningful way. It, it, really, it really does, brother. And, and, and keep this in mind. See, because we're talking about culture-responsive learning in math, I don't want to conflate culture responsive learning with social justice. I, I want to make sure we don't do that because we don't always have to teach math from the lens of a negative issue or a social justice issue like racial profiling. If we're talking culture responsiveness in math, there are other ways we can inject it. Let's look at it from a, a counter narrative standpoint. Let's look at the history of math. Let's talk about ancient Kemet how the commissions were the originators of a lot of the algebra that we're teaching y'all today. Let's look at the papyri, where they were writing these highly sophisticated calculations and formulas in Medunetra. Let me interject for a moment, because ahead, I've, thought of, I've thought about this a bit. In your undergrad program, did you learn about this? Because, like, I assume... Sorry, I got to ask, you know, I'm the interview. I got to ask these questions. It's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. But no, I did not learn that, man. I didn't. And you didn't learn it in K through 12? No, sir. Right. So then where did you learn this? I learned it while I was an active middle school teacher. I just developed the consciousness. I started to see what was going on. I started to see what other teachers were teaching in their different classes. And I always thought to myself, man, like, I know the history. And I feel like, I've always felt like it was something that could be taught. But I just didn't know how to incorporate it into the scope of sequence in a way that didn't disrupt what my administrators wanted me to do. In a way, it didn't, in a way that, you know, didn't disrupt what the district wanted me to teach, Right. 
but I always knew in the back of my mind that it was something that I needed to at least let my black and brown students know because that's what's going to give them the confidence to feel like, hey, we could be mathematicians too. Mathematicians don't have to look like this. They don't, they're not all white. They're not all from Greece. Like, they come from Africa. But these origins are important. And so why, why, why isn't this being taught on the college and university level? This, this stuff gets me mad. In certain universities, there are courses that focus on ethno-mathematics and the history of it. But usually it's in the form of an elective. It's not a required course. And I'm telling you this because I was a math major, bro. I was taking pure math courses where we're just focused on cracking theorems, conjectures, and just solving different stuff. It was never it was never a case where we were learning about the history of these people. If anything, if we were learning about any kind of history, it was always about the Greek mathematicians, never the ones from Africa and other um, parts of the globe. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.